Amen. If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 119. Our passage is verse 25 to verse 32. There is an outline in the bulletin you can track along with the message this morning as we talk about Psalm 119 for the fourth Sunday. We mentioned this earlier. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Uh, We're not going to come by with the elements, but they're in the back uh, on either side of the room, and you're more than welcome to get up and to grab those uh, if you need them. Uh, so that you can celebrate the Lord's Supper with us here in just a minute. Psalm 119, you know if you've been here the last couple weeks, is an acrostic poem. And the first three weeks that we've looked at Psalm 119, I've tried to explain the acrostic part, and I'm going to take a break from that this morning. So if this is your first Sunday, come back next week. We'll come back and refresh ourselves on the acrostic part. I just want to remind you this morning that Psalm 119 is a poem. Not only is it an acrostic, but it is a poem. It's just a work of poetry. And one of the things you need to know when you read poetry is that sometimes it moves in a linear chronological direction, and sometimes it doesn't. Poetry reserves the right to sort of come back and rethink things and uh, move things out of order and to think about things thematically or topically and not necessarily chronologically. And that's true in our passage this morning, this particular section of Psalm 119, one of the things that we're going to notice is that he talks about the past and the present and the future, but he doesn't do that in one straight line. And so I just want to say that to you up front. Uh, Be mindful that this is a poem. You can think about this sort of like a diamond, at least this section of Psalm 119 and really all of Psalm 119. You you hold a diamond in your hand and you turn it and you uh, move the angle and you see different perspectives and light and colors. And that's really what the psalmist is doing in this longest chapter of the Bible is he's holding up the Word of God itself and he's looking at it from different perspectives, examining it from different angles and giving us different descriptions uh, and insights into what the Bible is. So in Psalm 119, there are 176 verses. Almost every verse makes reference to the Word of God. And you'll notice this fall that on Sunday mornings we're singing a couple of new songs, one of them we just did this morning, songs that help us to think about God's Word and the truthfulness of of God's Word and the power of God's Word and the way that God's Word ought to shape our life. So we're trying to sing about what the psalmist is writing about when we think about the Bible itself. This is week four. So we're in the fourth section of Psalm 119. We're taking a section each week. That means we've come to the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the Daleth section. And I just want to make one note before we get to the big idea and we read the passage. I want you to recognize that the section we're looking at this morning, it builds on and it adds to and it deepens something that we saw last week in the third section, in the Gimel section, and that's the idea of suffering. So if your Bible is open, you can look at the section we looked at last week, verse 22 and verse 23. He talks about scorn and contempt and people, princes who are actively plotting against him. So there's things in his life that are not the way that any of us would want them to be. He's experiencing some measure of suffering or discomfort or unpleasant circumstances. In the section we're about to read, that is deepened. 
and it's intensified and his suffering is greater in this section and that's part of what you need to understand to make sense of the big idea. The big idea, verse 25 to 32, the Dallas section is this. The word of God provides strength to the weak. Suffering reminds us of our smallness, our finiteness, our weakness. And in those moments of suffering, some of them incredibly difficult to process and to manage and to walk through, the Word of God provides strength to those who are weak, those who need strength. So look with me at Psalm 119. Let's read our section here beginning in verse 25. The psalmist says this, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Father, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read this section this week, one of the immediate things that stood out to me is that the psalmist in these eight verses talks briefly about the past. He has things to say about the present. And then he has some things to say about the future. And so as I began to think about how we would jump into this, I thought, well, maybe I could find an inspirational quote about the past and the present and the future. And so uh, I engaged in some serious scholarly research, and I got on Google, and I typed in past, present, future quotes, and I began to think about some of the things that popped up. And it really was interesting, the quotes that the internet gave me. The algorithm gave me some interesting material. I'm not going to share any of them with you because you're fully capable of doing this on your own, but I'll just tell you that one set of quotes said, you really have to learn from the past. You cannot forget the past. You have to understand the past. You have to study the past. You have to make sense of the past. If you don't do this, you'll just repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. You'll be doomed to repeat it. The past is really, really important. Then there was another group of quotes that said, you know what? Your past is in the past, and you can't change it. And the future is out there in front of you, and you need to be a go-getter. And if you don't like where you're at or you don't like where you've been, then make some changes and move into the future and do things in a different way as you move forward. The future is the thing that you ought to set your eyes on. You cannot live in the past. You have to move forward. Then there was a whole bunch of quotes right in the middle that said, you know what? The past is yesterday. It's gone. And the future's tomorrow. It's not here yet. All you have is the present. And you've got to live in the present. Don't live in the past thinking about how it used to be. Don't live in the future waiting for the next thing to come along. But focus on the present. Be present and live in the moment. Then there was another group of quotes. These were the most interesting and the most entertaining. These were the quotes from uh, 
physicists mostly, that said, you know what, past, present, and future are all just an illusion. There is no such thing as any of it. We just are living in this weird mix of space, time, dimension, four dimensions, five dimensions, and time is just an illusion. It's just a different point in space, and if we could only find a way to move at these different points, you would really realize and understand that you're experiencing all of those things all at the same time. So that's an interesting take on the past and the present and the future. Some of you may think, you know, I understand what those physicists are saying and I agree with them. And to you, I would say you should just sort of move through space-time history and go straight to the roses line right now if you're capable of that. You can skip this sermon and you can get straight to lunch and move on with your day. But you know and I know, we all intuitively know that there is such a thing as the past. There is a present moment that we find ourselves in and we can conceptualize the future. And it doesn't take long for children to figure this out. Now, all of my children have moved through the developmental stage where they understood that there's a past, and there's a present, and there's a future. And in the earliest stages, maybe you can remember your kids or grandkids doing this, in the earliest stages of development and conceptualizing these things, my kids would talk about anything in the future as tomorrow. It's going to happen tomorrow, meaning in the future. And it might be a year into the future, but in their mind, that was tomorrow. And at the same time, they would look back and say, do you remember when we did this yesterday? And it might have been a week ago or a month ago or a year ago. But even children have this basic understanding as they begin to figure out the world, there is a past, there is a present, and there is a future. And the psalmist, as he thinks about his present, has something to say about his past, and he has something to say about his future, and he says some things about the present. And our aim this morning is to consider what he says as we think about suffering and the Word of God and our weakness and the strength that the Word of God can provide. So let's start with the present. The psalmist was suffering greatly. That was his present circumstance. He was suffering greatly. Look at verse 25. He says, my soul clings to the dust. My soul clings to the dust. We're going to come back to the word clings in just a minute. So stay tuned for the word clings. I just want you to think about the word dust. One of the things the Bible does over and over and over again is it references itself. It looks back to previous things that God had said and brings them into the present. And I think the psalmist is doing that when he says, my soul clings to the dust. Immediately, you may think, well, he probably lives in a place like Odessa where it never rains and there's dust everywhere and you just feel like I'm clinging to the dust and the dust is clinging to me. And that's somewhat true for the part of the world that the psalmist lived in. But I don't think he's talking about weather or geography. I think he's referring back to Genesis chapter 3. I think he's making a poetic callback to the story in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They ate of the tree they were not supposed to eat of. They listened to the serpent rather than the creator. And God came and he pronounced judgment on the man and judgment on the woman and judgment on the ground and judgment on the serpent. And one of the things he said to Adam and Eve is, I took you from the dust and you're going back where? To the dust. You're going to die. 
And when the psalmist, the Hebrew psalmist says, my soul clings to the dust, it's a poetic way of saying, I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm at the very end of what I can handle and what I can take in. My soul is clinging to the dust. What was his circumstance? We have no idea. We don't know what he was dealing with here. But you know, if you've lived very long, that there are things you experience in life where you step back and you say, I feel like I'm close to the end of myself. The weight of this feels heavier than I think that I can carry. Poetically, you might say, my soul is clinging to the dust. Or you might jump down later in our section to verse 28 where he says, my soul melts away for sorrow. My soul melts away for sorrow. That's a Hebrew idiom. Uh, His soul is not literally melting, like it's reached the temperature where it would melt. It's what we might say in English, I'm suffering from a broken heart. I just feel the weight of sin and brokenness and fallenness and heaviness, and my soul is clinging to the dust, and my soul is melting away with sorrow. So I just want to stop at this point. We have a lot more to say about Psalm 119, but I just want to acknowledge suffering is a reality in this world. It's an unavoidable, inescapable reality. And every worldview has to give an answer or an explanation for why we experience the suffering that we experience in this world. Many times, Christians get backed into a corner, and people want to attack Christianity, tear down the Christian faith, and they say, oh, really, you believe in a God, and He's powerful, and He's good, and all. Yes, yes, yes. Well, then, how come there's so much suffering in the world? And Christians sometimes get backed into a corner of, of argumentation and apologetic debate and, and theological conversation, and they feel like, I don't know that I have a great answer for that. Can I just tell you something? As you're here this morning, early service, I think most of you would identify as Christian people. Every worldview has to answer that question, not just the Christian worldview. And I I don't know if you've talked to people from other worldviews about how they explain suffering in the world, but I don't think their answers are very good. One of the things you can do to somebody who's asking you that question is simply to say kindly, how do you make sense of it? Because the Bible has an answer, and you may or may not like it. But I'd just like to know, how do you make sense of it? Some people will say, well, suffering's just an illusion. It's not real. I think you know it's real. I think you know it's not an illusion. The scientific naturalist who doesn't believe in God says it's just a matter of survival of the fittest. There's really no suffering. It's just the endless chain reaction of chemical processes playing out in the world. And I think you know there's more to life than chemical processes playing out. You know that suffering's real. And the Bible does have an answer. The Bible connects the reality of suffering to our sin. The story of Genesis 3 that we talked about earlier. It was through one man that sin and death and suffering and sickness entered into the world. It was through Adam. The Bible also speaks about a second Adam another representative for humanity, 
It was the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the second person of the Trinity who willingly entered into this broken, fallen, suffering world and walked among us as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, somebody who experienced the full range of human suffering up to and including death, even death on a cross. You understand, when we take the Lord's Supper together as Christians, we're dealing with the question of suffering. We're dealing with the problem of evil. And one of the things that we're saying when we take the Lord's Supper is we believe that God Himself, the Creator, sent His Son, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to live in this earth, to live a life of perfect, sinless obedience to the law of God so that our sins could be placed on Jesus and He could pay the penalty for our sins on the cross and that in exchange for our sins being placed on Jesus, His righteousness could be given to those who believe. That's the good news of the gospel as it's spelled out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, He, God, the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, and He knew no sin. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And the Father made Him to be sin for us. Why? So that in Jesus, in Him, we sinners might become the righteousness of God. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating this truth. That the one true and living God understands sin and brokenness and suffering and pain and hurt. Because Jesus was a man of sorrows and He was made sin for us and He suffered and died for our salvation. So this morning, if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins and believed the gospel, and you've been obedient to the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. This morning, I'm going to read from a passage we don't often read from. I'm going to read from Isaiah. I'm going to ask that you take the bread. We're going to read this ancient prophecy about Jesus and his death on the cross. I'm going to begin in Isaiah 53, verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 6. The prophet says, Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7 continues. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Psalm 119. We're thinking about the present. In the present, the psalmist was suffering greatly. It's not the only thing that he was doing. Secondly, he was clinging to the Word of God. Suffering greatly, clinging to the Word of God. Look at verse 30. In the present, he says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. And he says that he set God's rules before him. And in verse 31, present tense, I cling to your testimonies. Let's come back to that word cling because we saw it up above in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust and he uses it again in verse 31. I cling to your testimonies. Both of those present tense realities, he uses this word cling. The Hebrew word is debak and it is the D word, the Daleth word that begins each of these two verses in this section. This is the Daleth section. The first letter of the first word of each of these eight lines of poetry is a Daleth. This is the Daleth in the word Dabak. You'll find this word in Genesis 2.24 where God tells Adam, you need to leave your mother and your father and you need to cling to your spouse, cling to your wife. You'll find it in Deuteronomy 11. In Deuteronomy 11, Moses says to the people, when you enter the promised land, you need to cling to the Lord. Do not chase the gods of those peoples, but you need to cling to the Lord and you need to hold tight to Him. You'll even find it, if you'll permit me a funny example, in Jeremiah 13, where Jeremiah gives a, a word picture to God's people. Many years later, they have not clung to the Lord, and Jeremiah is trying to make a point. He takes a new loincloth, he buries it in the ground, he digs it up later when it's rotten, and he says to the people, loincloths cling to the person that's wearing them. You understand what Jeremiah is saying. They stay close to the person that's wearing them. You should have stayed close to the Lord. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Two things are clinging. His soul is clinging to the dust. He's suffering greatly, 
and he is clinging to the word of God. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. So that's the present. Let's talk about the past. What happened in the psalmist's past to bring him to this point? We only have one little insight. It's in verse 26, and we find out that the psalmist had been a man of prayer. A man of prayer. Verse 26, when I told of my ways, that's past tense. He's looking behind him in the rearview mirror of life, and he's saying, in the past, when I told of my ways, you, some translations say you heard me. I'm reading out of the ESV, and it says you answered me. When I talked to you about my ways, my life, my circumstance, my situation, what was happening. When I told you about those things, you heard me and you answered me. Now, this is, if you're a thinking person, this is the most fascinating part of this section of Psalm 119. It's really, really interesting. Because I want you to think about what he's saying. He's saying, in the past, I talked to God about my ways, my life, my situation, my circumstance, and he heard me and he answered my prayer. That's the past. He prayed and God heard him and God answered him. Now it's the present, and in the present, he's suffering greatly. And somehow you have to fit those two things together. That he has prayed and God heard him and God answered him, and in the present, he is suffering greatly even as he clings to the Word of God. Think about our prayer lives. What is it easiest to pray about, and what do we probably pray for the most? I think if you're honest and you really think about it, it's our problems. That's when it's easiest to pray when you have a problem. And you talk to God about that problem. You don't know what else to do, so you say, I need to pray. I need to talk to God about this. And most of the time in those situations, when we pray to God about our problems, be honest to yourself, not out loud. What are we asking God to do? Usually it's fix the problem, right? God, I have a problem, and I need you to fix it. I have something uncomfortable. I'm clinging to the dust. And I need you to fix that problem. Now, i just be honest with you. Personally, I've wrestled with this a lot as I've thought about my own prayer life. And as a pastor, as I've prayed with other people, and people have asked me to pray with them, I've really wrestled with this issue of what is it that I should be asking of God in these circumstances, in these situations? Because most of the time when someone comes to the pastor and says, would you pray with me, would you pray for me, usually there's a problem. And usually the implied suggestion is, I need God to fix this problem. Now, look, I understand that the Bible says you should cast all your anxieties on God because He cares for you. I get it. And I understand that in the book of Psalms, the psalmist prays about just about everything you could possibly imagine in life. There's nothing that he does not pray for. He prays about everything, including lots of problems. I get it. But sometimes I step back and I listen to myself or I listen to us and I say, in our prayers, are we trying to tell God something that we think maybe He doesn't know? 
And in our praying, am I actually trying to give God advice about how to run the universe? I mean, when I say it out loud like that, you say, no, God doesn't need advice about how to run the universe. But I'm afraid sometimes in my praying, I'm guilty of that, of saying, God, you're doing it this way. I really think that you ought to do it this way. I don't know if you've considered this in all of your infinite knowledge and wisdom and omniscience, but might you consider doing it differently? I have a better idea than what you're doing. Psalm 119, verse 26, I talked to God about my ways. I told him of my ways, and he heard me. You heard me, and you answered me. And in the present, verse 25, his soul is clinging to the dust. In verse 28, his soul is melting away with sorrow. And the only way that I can make all of that fit, the past and the present together in his prayer life, is to say whatever he prayed for, it was not ease and comfort and a problem-free life and everything to go his way and everything to be resolved the way that he wanted it to be resolved because God heard him and God answered him. The implication is he answered him in a positive manner. You heard me. You answered me. And yet here he is suffering, and his soul is melting away for sorrow. Maybe, maybe, prayer is not a spiritual activity that you and I only engage in to avoid suffering. Maybe prayer is more than that. Maybe prayer is not just something we do when we have a crisis and we want God to fix it, but maybe there's more to prayer than just that. My wife and I have been reading a book. It's a very short book. I commend it to you. It's by a guy named Kevin DeYoung, a pastor, and it's called The Lord's Prayer, and it's just a walk through the Lord's Prayer from the Gospel of Matthew, thinking about how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And in our discussion of the book, this last week, we came across a quote, and I said to her, I'm going to use that Sunday because I think that's a helpful quote. It said, we must always remember that Christian prayer isn't ultimately a way to make God do our will. That is paganism or magic. There's nothing Christian about that. Who doesn't want an all-powerful being to be at our beck and call? Who wouldn't want a genie in a lamp? No, don't pray that God would do our will. In Christian prayer, we ask that the world and everything and everyone would be conformed to God's will. That's mature Christian faith, and that's what Christian prayer sounds like. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not my will be done. Your will be done. The psalmist had been a man of prayer We don't know exactly what he prayed for, but we know that he felt that the Lord had answered his prayer, and yet he was still suffering, and his soul was still melting away in sorrow. So that brings us to his request. What is he actually asking of the Lord here? We'll go through these quickly. Number one, he's asking God to give him life and strength. Life and strength. He asked for life in verse 25. Give me life according to your word. Verse 28, strengthen me according to your word. He does not pray that God would remove the dust or stop his soul from melting. 
He does pray that God would give him life as it's defined by God's Word, as it's provided by God's Word, and that God would give him strength, the kind of strength that is rooted and found in the Word of God. Give me life and give me strength. We've been praying about this and singing about this in recent weeks. We didn't sing this song this morning, but we've been singing a new song called Your Words Are Wonderful. And the song is pulled from Psalm 119 and from John 6. And John 6 has a verse in verse 68 where Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus has asked the disciples, are you going to leave too? All the crowds are leaving. People are mad, disgruntled, disappointed, disinterested. Are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? Because you have the words of life. The psalmist says, give me life according to your word. Strengthen me according to your word. Second request. The psalmist asks God to help him understand the Bible. It's an interesting request in the midst of suffering, isn't it? Look at verse 26. Teach me your statutes. Verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 29. Graciously teach me your law. What a different request than what we often pray in our suffering. I mean, I know my inclination, and I know the inclination of most people. When you're suffering, you tend to ask God a couple of questions. What is going on, and why is this happening? That's the request. I would like you to explain what's happening right now because I don't understand it, and I would like to know why this is happening. Is that not what Job asked of the Lord eventually as his suffering was prolonged? God, I would like you to come down here and give an account for what's happening right now because I think something's been crossed in the messaging. I don't understand it. He wanted God to give an explanation. We often want God to give us an explanation. What's going on and why is it happening? What does the psalmist ask God to do? Not explain the situation, not explain the circumstance. God, would you please explain the Bible to me? Would you please help me to understand your word Better. I don't expect you to explain to me everything that you're doing in the universe and in my life in this particular instance of suffering and my soul melting away and the sorrow and the dust and all of it. But I need life according to your word. I need strength from your word, which means I need you to help me understand your word. Maybe something to pray the next time you find yourself suffering. God, would you please help me to understand the Bible better? Would you help me to make sense of the Bible better? Number three, asking God to preserve him. Asking God to preserve him. And this is not in a physical sense, but it's clearly in a spiritual sense. Look at verse 29. He says, put false ways far from me. He knows that he's going to be tempted with falsehood, and he wants it to be put far from from him. I don't want to fall into lies. I don't want to fall into falsehoods. Put these things far from me. Look at verse 31. Let me not be put to shame. Let me not be put to shame. Don't let me fall into falsehood. That would be a shameful thing. Lord, in this suffering, as you strengthen me and you help me understand your word, please preserve me. 
preserve my faith? I think one of the most common questions that I get asked as a pastor, two or three I would put on this list, but I think one of the most common that I get asked is people who are new to our church who want to know the answer to this question. Do you believe in once saved, always saved? And that's always how the question gets asked. Do you believe in once saved, always saved? And I have learned, took me a while, I'm a slow learner, but I have learned that it is usually not best to just give an answer to that question immediately. Because I've learned that people don't mean the same thing when they ask that question. People come at that question from different backgrounds and with different assumptions. So if the question is, do you believe in the eternal security of the believer, the answer is yes, we do. We believe that when a person is genuinely saved and adopted into God's family, their place in and among the people of God is secure no matter what. But if the question is, do you believe I can pray a prayer and then do whatever I want with the rest of my life and still go to heaven when I die? The answer is no, we do not believe that. And we don't believe that that person in that scenario has lost his or her salvation. We agree with John in 1 John in saying that they never had it in the first place. They went out from us, and it's proof that they were never truly one of us. But the cliche is tricky, and it confuses people, and it gets thrown around by people of all sorts of different doctrinal stripes, and people accuse people of it, and people hold it up as a a pillar of their faith. More than cliches, we should just stick with tried and true doctrines, okay? Here's the tried and true doctrine as defined by the Reformers. We believe in the perseverance of the saints, Saints is not a word for special holy people. It's a word in the Bible for Christians. We believe that Christians, true born-again believers, will persevere in their faith. Why? Because we believe that the God who elects and calls and justifies and adopts and glorifies also sanctifies His people throughout their life. And that none are lost in the process of God working salvation in the life of His people. True believers persevere in the faith. Why? Because God preserves them. True believers will persevere in the faith because God is faithful to preserve His people. We've already sung about this this morning in singing about the Word of God. We sang about the truth that when God starts a thing, He finishes a thing. That's pulled straight from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this. This is not questionable. This is really not debatable. But when God begins a good work in someone's life, He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will preserve His people. And the result of God preserving His people is that they will persevere in faith. You see the same idea later in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, look, work out your own salvation. Not work for it, but work it out. God works it in you. You're working it out with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who's working in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. You're going to persevere in working out your salvation because God is preserving you to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. You understand, this is what the psalmist is praying for in his suffering. Let's bring it back to Psalm 119. Put falsehood far from me and do not let me be put to shame. God, please preserve me so that I will persevere as one of your people. Let's talk about the future. He makes two commitments at the end, and we'll, we'll mention these briefly. Commitment number one, the psalmist promised to meditate on God's Word. He promises to meditate on God's Word. That's in verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Secondly, he promised to live out God's Word. To live it out. Verse 32 says he, he will run in the way of God's commandments when God enlarges his heart. God, you do the work in me, enlarge my heart, and I will run in your commandments. You be at work in me to will and to work for your good pleasure, and I will work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Those are the commitments he makes, to meditate on the word of God and to live out the word of God. You have a past and it is in the past. And you have a future, and it's out there. Right now you have a present. And the question in this present moment is, what will you do with the Word of God as we've heard it this morning? The call on your life from this section, the fourth section of Psalm 119, is number one, to be people of prayer. I will commit myself to be a praying person. The psalmist had made that commitment in the past. He had prayed. He had talked to the Lord. Be a person of prayer. Number two, cling to the Word of God. Cling to it. Debak. Hold tight to it. Let nothing come in between you and it. And as you cling to it, you run in it. You live it out. It's not just something you hold to intellectually, but it's something that changes your life and you make this same commitment. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. 